Good morning. Good morning. Well, my name is Thomas, and I'm one of your pastors here at Parkview, and it is just, ah, thank you, Will, and the, and the team. It's just, I, I just have to, yeah. <laughs> Wonderful job, and I just, it, in particular, it's so meaningful for me to, to hear you and, and me together calling for Christ to reveal himself. That's, it's just what we need the most. So answer that prayer today, Lord. Um, we are today sort of continuing our Easter series. We haven't left it behind, but we are sort of continuing. And we want to consider a big, some, some big questions about who Jesus is, why the resurrection matters, and what it means now. Um, so we'll be in sort of a number of passages today. We won't be doing sort of our usual thing and just camping out in one spot. Uh, so it'll be particularly useful. The, the passages will be on the screen, but it's always good to have it for yourself. We have a saying here at Parkview, bring your Bible to church. So there you go. Uh, great. Well, the distance from London, England to Canberra, Australia is 10,545 miles. So, why is Queen England, the Queen of England, still Australia's queen? How in the world can she administrate, rule, lead? It, when you get, you know, a, an Australian $100 bill, there's her face. How in the world is she leading that country from afar? Well, uh, as, you, as I was nerding out on some Wikipedia this week and sort of trying to figure out the answer to that question, the, the answer really is she's, she's a figurehead. She's, she's not, it's not really a, a real rule, a real dominion. Now, just this last week, we, we celebrated the resurrected Christ who has, who has conquered death, defeated the grave, and the Bible tells us that after 40 days on earth with his disciples preparing them, he ascended to heaven. Now, it, it seems impossible that the Queen of England could administrate and lead and do all the things that are required to lead a people from 10,000 miles away. How far away is Christ? His, because his literal physical body, that's, that's what we believe, that's what we, we've confessed. He's seated, not sort of his spirit has, has you know, and his flesh went somewhere else. Sitting at the right hand of God. So how is this possible? How can he lead us, his people today, if he's so far away? That is to say, what is Jesus doing? What is he doing right now? That is the big question that I want us to answer today, and we will see several things that are very exciting. Uh, I'll, I'll, I want to just start by, let's just dive in real quick, and I want to show you where this sort of spurred thought for me, in Acts 1. So if you flip there, this is um, in the New Testament, the f uh, fifth book of the New Testament, you'd read, in the first two lines in particular, and this seems like a small thing, but a little observation that has some really serious consequences for our question today. It says this, and this is Luke, uh, the man who wrote also the Gospel of Luke. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus, he's referring to the Gospel of Luke, in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus, and listen up here, all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. That is, ascended after his resurrection, 40 days with his, with his people, and then he ascended. In case you missed it, what Luke just did in that sentence was he, he described the Gospel of Luke, his, his great biography of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So under that heading, that would be Jesus being born, 
coming from heaven to earth, being born of the Virgin Mary, as we said, uh, living 30-some years on earth, teaching and so forth, living a human life, uh, dying, as we celebrated all the events of last weekend, uh, being raised from the dead, 40 days. All of that, Luke puts under the heading of all that Jesus began to do and teach. Luke seems to be saying that Jesus' earthly ministry, including his death and resurrection, were the prologue to his ministry. The, just the first couple chapters. It's a pretty incredible thing. And, and it has to make us wonder, if that was all that Jesus began to do and teach, all the things we celebrated last weekend and so many of the things we, just, we think of Jesus, and that's what he's doing, right? That's what he did. It was just the beginning. So what's he doing now? Apparently a lot is the first answer. Uh, there's more to say, but I, I just had to point that out. So we're going to look through the New Testament and see sort of the answer to that question. What's he doing now uh, after the beginning of his ministry? First, let me pray again that the Lord would do a wonderful thing here. Heavenly Father, we do, we do just we repeat that prayer. Show us Christ. What we need most today is to wake up Give us the spirit to be smelling salts for us to shake us out of the kind of the drudgery of day-to-day -day existence that can bring our gaze from the truths that are most foundational and most meaningful and most life-changing for us. Bring our gaze back up. Widen it. Make it, make it panoramic. Make it the, the fish-eye lens. Help us to see, that is, reality. Help us to see Christ, who he is, what he is doing, and what it means. Do all of this. Transform us so we can be the people you have called us to be today and forever. Amen. Wonderful. Well, we'll begin in Ephesians 1. So if you want to flip there, I'll do the same up here. Start in Ephesians 1. Uh, we'll be in Ephesians for the first two sort of observations. And by the way, these are, I'm not going to say all the things Jesus is doing. There's much more that I won't mention. Uh, but I just want to point out three things. Uh, so I'll read Ephesians 1, 19 through 23 to you. And this sort of picks up in the middle of a sentence. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul, praying uh, for the little church in Ephesus. Uh, and this is what he prays for them. He says, I pray that you would have the heart, eyes of your hearts enlightened. And then we go on to 19 to see what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Hmm. This is, it's giving us some explicit insight into what Christ is doing now. Uh, probably most explicitly, and maybe if we could summarize, we can see that all things are put under Christ's feet. That's not an image that we use very often. Maybe uh, as I was thinking of this, I was like, do we even think this way? I thought of like pro wrestling, you know, the guy who's like, get smacked down, he's on the ground, and then the guy kind of puts his foot, and he's like, yeah. That's kind of the idea. Uh, something under your feet, it's not as if he's sort of looking down, and that's under my feet down there. Uh, rather, it's, it's the idea of ruling, of dominion, of power, 
of control. What is Jesus doing? He's very busy. And at this moment, the resurrected divine Jesus with a human body, not a ghost or a spirit, is physically seated at the right hand of God the Father in the heavens with all things placed under his feet, all authority being his, Jesus Christ, our resurrected Lord, has ascended to the heavens and is now overseeing history in time and space and guiding it to its proper destination. On my best day and my worst day, Jesus has been the final authority, the supreme king, ensuring that every particle and personality ultimately submits to his divine heavenly rule. To answer our question, what is Jesus doing right now? Jesus is ruling the universe. That's what, that's what our king is doing. Ruling the universe. And this is important. It means that Christianity is, is not fundamentally a sort of a nice story that will encourage us to be moral, upright citizens and, and be very nice people and live sort of tidy lives. It means that God is not, not an, sort of an affable, senile old man in the heavens kind of nonchalantly looking on as history progresses without his intervention. It, it, means, it also means that the world is, is not the product of sort of a metaphysical accident or sort of blind power or just natural forces that can all sort of be conveniently explained. That's kind of a boring story, by the way, to me. Rather, the Bible tells a story A story is just a series of facts linked together, right? It it tells a story, a particular story, a true story about where the world began, where we are in the story, and where it's going. The Bible claims to tell us the shape of the universe. It's no small claim. Jesus is ruling the universe over all. He is guiding every... There are no accidents. There, there are no mistakes in your life or mine. Jesus, our resurrected king, was there at the beginning, creating all things with the Father. Jesus was there in the first garden where our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed to, with tragic consequences. He was there then at the end of his life in his own garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, making up for the, the errors of our first father, our first brother, Adam. Jesus has has fulfilled what he should have been, the decision that he should have made in in the garden. And he was there on the cross. Like Adam had a tree where he was called to obey, Jesus had a tree where he was called to obey. On a cross, he died, the cross that he created. On the cross where Jesus chose a crown of thorns. For Jesus, he thought a crown of thorns was the fitting crown for the kind of strange king that he would be, showing us what a strange universe we live in, a world charged with glory, a world where things are not quite as we expect them to be. Jesus, on the cross, Jesus chose the cross as his inauguration as cosmic king. And in his resurrection, Jesus, that is to say, the creator, the divine son, wrote himself into human history. This is what God is like wrote himself into human history so that he could become killable, so that we could kill him. And he absorbed human pain and divine wrath and died a real death with universal consequences. No ordinary death, because then God raised him from the dead. And for 40 days, this inaugurated king of the universe walked around with human flesh, eating breakfast, we see, 
and telling his people what was to come. That one day he would come back and fix everything. And that he would lead them from his heavenly throne through his spirit. This, Parkview Church, is no nursery fable meant to comfort us in sort of a generic, vague way on our way to just sort of living normal human lives. No, no, no. This is a story that claims to put all other stories in shadow and under its feet, so to speak. Jesus is on a heavenly throne commanding history, and that is to say commanding us. It is the ultimate meta-narrative. It is the ultimate... Jesus is calling us as resurrected Lord, ascended Lord, seated on the throne Lord, to live in line with reality just as it is. To live in line, to, to live in this world along the grain of the way that our creator has made it. When we call people to obey the gospel of Jesus, to obey King Jesus, we are calling them, I am calling you, fundamentally and ultimately, to be exactly what you were made to be. Too often, we, we live with sort of a shrunken vision of the world that we live in. Things, we're, we're sort of disenchanted. We have, we have dishes to wash and we have meetings that we need to go to. Some of them are on virtual stuff and that makes it even more sort of just strange and weird. We need more sleep and our, our roommate doesn't change the toilet paper when they should. And, and all these problems can just sort of bring our vision down and make us forget and get bogged down in the, sort of the everyday stuff of life, which God also cares about. But the world is such a grand place, charged with the grandeur of God. And what I have learned in my many years as a Christian is the longer you live in the Christian world, the world that God has created, awake to that reality, the bigger it becomes. The bigger it becomes. It's something like, do you remember Mary Poppins' bag? She comes over, she opens it, and what's in there? A merry-go-round? Really? How did, it, how did it all get in there? Maybe you're here, and you've heard me talk for these last few minutes, and you know, you're thinking, really, is that all I've ever heard from a Christian is sort of, give your life to Jesus, and you'll have eternal life in heaven, which is true enough. Praise God. There is more. There is so much in Christ. From the outside, it may look quite small, and I have to admit, for me, I, you come in, and all of a sudden you see there are things I never expected to be in here. And the world is a place that I did not know that it was. So abandon your puny vision of reality. <laughs> I call you to do it. Jesus is the Lord of history calling us, his people, to live in a world as it is. That's what he's calling us to. Lift your eyes to that reality. Do it often. Uh, so what's Jesus doing? At this moment, Jesus is superintending history toward his proper course, toward his proper end. Jesus is ruling the universe as we speak. And how is he doing it, by the way? Well, our, our next observation will deal with that. Let's turn to Ephesians 4 now. Ephesians 4, close by, a close neighbor. Let's, and I'll just read this. I'm going to read Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 12, and it'll be on the screen behind me as well. It says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean that, but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? 
He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. What is Jesus doing? He is, first of all, I guess let's just follow the trail of logic. He is giving gifts, we see in verse 7. And in this case, it seems the gifts are the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. These are gifts. To whom? Given to the saints, which is one of Paul's favorite words to describe every Christian, because every Christian, if they're united to Jesus, is as perfect in God's sight as Jesus. Saintly. Not a special class, saints. Saints, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, bodybuilding. What is Jesus doing? If, if in the first image we dealt with that Jesus is ruling the universe and sort of maybe the image is sort of the throne room or the, I don't know, we probably think of the Oval Office, you know, a place where the power seems to be located, but in the heavenlies, far over every, every single power is under his. That's the, sort of the throne room and that's the image we dealt with in our first point there. This is a different image. This is the image of Jesus in the war room, I think. The war room, you know. You, you see a movie, you see the generals, they're all in there, and you see the big head honcho, and they've got sort of the pieces all laid out on the map, and they see, here's the battlefront, and here, and they always have a big stick, right? And that's how they move the pieces around. And they move, we need to move these guys over here. And we need, we've got these resources, let's move them over here so that we can fight this battle, right? Right now, that is to say, Jesus is arranging the pieces on his battlefield, earth, us, you and me, moving his generals and his foot soldiers and everyone, lending people, you saw the apostles, the prophets, giving some people special gifts and everyone gifts so that we uh, can manifest his rule and reign on earth. This is the way, by the way, that, that Jesus is ruling and reigning, at least part of it. Right now, as we speak, God has used me and is using me. This is, I mean, one of the mysterious truths of this passage is it's talking about what we're doing right now using me to equip you to play your part in the great battle of our generation. Will you be ready this week when the general calls you forward, when he moves your piece across the map, when he calls you to the front of the line? Do you know what to do? Do you know how your weapon works? <laughs> or, or if I'm, to shift metaphors, another word, a way to say this is, very simply, Jesus is directing his church, directing his people. So to shift metaphors, will we be ready when our lines come up in, in the great drama of redemption, in the great story of history that God is playing out across space and time? Right now, Jesus is arranging every single, every single reality in your life to produce maximum fruitfulness for his kingdom. I'm going to say it again. Right now, the ascended Lord Jesus, who has every ounce, every micron of power in the universe, none of it able to actually ultimately resist his will, he is arranging every aspect of your life, every aspect of your life, to produce maximal meaningfulness, maximal fruitfulness for his kingdom. Your roommates... And neighbors 
are not a cosmic coincidence. Your coworkers are not a cosmic coincidence. The person in front of you at the grocery store who is taking forever <laughs> is not an accident. Not speaking from experience at all there. Your personal history, the good and the bad, is no mistake. God has been working on you, exactly you, exactly you, for 1,000 generations on either side to produce exactly you sitting in that exact seat, which is also no surprise to him, at this exact time with your exact relationships, your past, your present. He has, and he is nourishing you in certain ways. He is leading you in certain ways. He's protecting you from certain things. There are moments in your life where you're incredibly aware of that, right? There are moments where you're not so aware of it, but it's always true. This, if this passage, we take it to be true, it's true. This week, the curtains will part, and the question will be, are we ready to play our part? Are, are we responsive to all the ways that God is directing us in every aspect of our lives toward the end to which he's called us? Do you know your lines? Or to return to our, to our military metaphor, do you know how to use your weapon, the word of God? I mean, imagine, imagine a battle where the soldiers on one side only pick up their weapon once a week. How do you think that's going to go? <laughs> really bad <laughs> is how. Or imagine, a, you know, to return, I know I'm using two metaphors here, it's probably inadvisable, but imagine a play where the actors only rehearse once. Beth, do you lead the musicals? How would that go? <laughs> Terrible. Terrible. Jesus is directing our, his church. Are you ready to play your part? Do you know how to use your primary weapon, the word of God? If, if, if that's true, right? If you're a soldier on the battlefield, how well acquainted do you think you want to be with your weapon? Vaguely? <laughs> what do you, I, I, uh, I wish I knew what, what to do when it jams. No, I, I would like to know how to take it apart and put it back together with my eyes closed, uh, basically half asleep, that is how we should be. If you want to enter the mind of the director and understand the big story, what's my motivation, who is my character, what am I going for, know your Bible. Walk by God's Spirit. Ask God to teach you. Press into the opportunities that you have, especially here. God has given you words in your mouth to speak to the people around you. Literally right now, one of the ways we really encourage you to do that is by sticking around as you're comfortable after the service, discussing what have we learned? What does it mean? What, what has God laid on your heart even these last few minutes that, that is a way that he is calling you to respond to the fact that Christ is who he says he is, is where he says he is doing what he says he does? Sharing that with someone next to you. Being part of, of a community group or Bible discussion here, taking Bible discussion seriously, coming prepared, Re okay, probably my number one thing for this moment would be read the Bible passages before you come to church. We send them out in the weekly email. Make sure you're signed up for those. I, I love when I imagine that a good proportion of you on a Sunday morning come and I'm not the first one to read these words to you or for the first time for you to hear them. Um, so there are many ways that we can do that. So that is, right now, Jesus is directing his church, we see. So we must be prepared to play our part prepared to play our part. And finally, the last thing we'll see, and you can turn over to Hebrews 7, 
uh, just probably about 100 pages further in your Bible or so. Uh, Hebrews 7, verses 23 through 25. So we've learned so far that Jesus is ruling the universe. He is directing his church, both personally in each one of our lives and from the grandest level. And finally, we're going to see one more thing here in Hebrews 7, verses 23 through 25. It says this. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. A couple things. Of course, when it says he, uh, it's talking about Christ here. And secondly, when we read that word priest, uh, probably for many of us, we imagine the Catholic Church. Uh, what, this, what this passage and what much of the book of Hebrews is, is making, the certain point, is that a priest is fundamentally a mediator between God and man. And that the reason that we, I'm a pastor and not a priest, is because we, ha- we have a mediator between God and man. First Timothy says there's one God, one mediator between God and man, that is Jesus Christ. It's not that we've done away, for, done away with priesthoods or with the Levitical order that we read about in the Old Testament and all that kind of the sacrifices and all that stuff. It's that we, we have the fulfillment of it. Jesus is the ultimate priest who stands between us and God. Jesus is the ultimate priest who offers sacrifice to God, the sacrifice of himself. And so we don't need more priests. We already have this priest. And Jesus is our heavenly priest who has not gone into sort of behind the curtain to do some mysterious stuff uh, that we read about and, and all that. Jesus is our heavenly priest who has gone into the actual presence of God the Father. And what is he doing there? This is what we see. He is saving to the uttermost because he always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus right now is interceding for us. That is what the resurrected Christ is doing. Intercession, that might be an unfamiliar word for for you. I don't think I have used it very much outside of the context of uh, something like Hebrews 7. Uh, Usually, maybe you've heard of it in a a legal context or we might say, oh, this person really interceded on his behalf um, in this situation. Uh, Maybe a word we might use more often is advocate. They advocated for for someone. Uh, But intercession is, is what's required when someone is in trouble. When I'm in trouble, I need someone to intercede for me. To, to advocate for me, uh, to solve the problem. And, and when I'm in need of an intercessor, I need someone powerful would be good, right? Uh, someone who can actually do something about my problem. And of course, Jesus fits that bill. He, as we read uh, just in Ephesians 1, Jesus is ruling the universe. He, there's no end to his power. So you, when you need an intercessor, someone to stand in to protect you from the danger that might be, you might be facing, you want someone who's powerful. But you don't just need power to be a good intercessor. What we learn here, too, is that Jesus is, we need an intercessor who who knows exactly what the endangered party needs. They're not just powerful enough to do something about the needs. They know what those needs are. The, The most useful intercessor is someone who knows exactly what you need. Because they're there because you can't be. They're there because you aren't. And you hope they'll have your best interest at heart, but you can't be possibly totally sure, can you? The best intercessor you could have, actually, is someone who has been in your exact same place. And therefore, they know 
from firsthand experience, what it's like to be where you are, what you need. And in this case, when Jesus intercedes, he doesn't have to go to the magistrate or go to the judge or go to the whatever it might be. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. So when Jesus prays for us, it's more like him turning to the Father and saying, hey, send this because he needs it. And he's not fighting with the Father and the Father sort of having different ideas about things. They are completely aligned in will and what God says he will do. When Jesus became a man, he was uniting permanently his divine nature to our human weakness. And that means he knows what we need. Now, in the last couple of years, a few things have happened to me. Uh, in September, uh, two years ago, my mom died suddenly uh, and tragically. And um, as a consequence of that, I found out that I had a serious heart problem. And um, I didn't know if I, you know, especially initially, was just incredibly concerned. I'm thinking about my children. Am I going to be okay? I might need this massive surgery, all this kind of stuff. Now things seem to have, by the way, I'm okay, uh, as far as I know right now, so that's good. But the third thing is that um, my mom's mom survived her. And so my grandma is now, you know, is, we're responsible for her care in many ways. Now what happened there, <laughs> and why I bring it up here, is that it has made me so much better of a friend. And I think so much better of a, of a pastor to you. Because it used to be that when people would come to me, so many of you, and you would share that you had lost a parent, or you, had, you were struggling with um, being the caretaker for an older parent, or when you were struggling with the fear that you, the fear of death. I, because my mom died suddenly and what I have, you know, I was afraid. I was afraid I would just drop off. And I, I used to minister to people who had those problems as someone, I, I, could, I could empathize, but I couldn't sympathize. I could say, that's so, I, that must be really hard. I don't say that anymore. I say, I know exactly what you're going through. I've been there. Our God is a God who has been on the operating table, who has been in, in the seat of accusation, been in, has been interrogated, who has been burdened, by pain. And when he comes to us, by the way, probably the biggest thing that it did for me, not only in terms of the compassion that I could reach out to with, but in terms of the way that I could pray for them. I, I, knew, I thought, you know what, I know what they need in a way that I never could have before. And that was a gift to me. And in fact, to be honest, it was fulfilling and filling in me some of the character flaws that I had. God used those things to make me the man that I needed to become for you and for, for his world. Now, that is tiny in comparison to what Jesus has done for us. He chose those things. He chose to become like us in every way so that when he returned to the Father on high, there would never be any doubt that he knew exactly what you need. Jesus, now, he is as compassionate as he is capable to help you. So when I call you to know your lines, 
to, to play your part in the grand drama that God is playing across space and time, to submit to God's rule and reign. Jesus knows how hard that is. Jesus has lived a life. He has been tempted. He has been hungry. He has been tired. He has been sick. He has been bruised. He has been beat up. He has died. He's been betrayed. He knows what it's like to be lied to and betrayed and to have someone act like they love you and kiss you, but what they really mean is, I wish you were dead. Jesus knows what it, strangely enough, Jesus might know what it, Jesus might not know what it's like to sin, but he knows what it's like to be treated by God like a sinner. He knows what it feels like for the Father to be angry with you. He knows what it feels like to be frustrated with your friends and your work and to feel like it's not worth it or it's ineffectual or should I just give up? He knows what you need. He knows what it's like to be a sufferer. He knows what it's like. Jesus right now, that is to say, is seated at the right hand of the Father, not only ruling over the universe, directing us, his church, but interceding for you. He has taken on our, not just our generic human nature, as in, oh great, Jesus has a body now. He's taken our specific, yours and yours and yours, your problems, and every day he takes them to the Father with him to empower you to endure them faithfully. So, what must we do today? How do we take this home? I call you, I, like I did, to just expand your view of, of the kingdom of God on earth through the resurrected Jesus Christ. That we do live in a world charged with glory, with no accidents, no mistakes. God has put you exactly where you are, exactly who you are. Of course, he's urging you onward toward more Christ-likeness. But to be uh, his, his person where you, he has placed you. To play your part in the drama of his story uh, and to be comforted by Christ's intercessory ministry on your behalf. The Father responding to the Son's urging to bless your life in every way that you need. So let's go to God now. Ask him to be that for us, to press this reality into our hearts that's always been there, but we need to be awakened to it again. And then we'll go together and be these kind of people, even in the next five minutes, speaking the words to, to one another, encouraging one another and all that, that he might have for us to do. Heavenly Father, we praise you that your Christ is not dead. <laughs> he is alive. He has been raised. You have, when we say that you have put every authority, every reality under his feet, we include death. You are a resurrected king. There is no end to your power. You, as, Lord, I, I hope you have been pleased as you in the heavens look on at us, your gathered people, the people you have gathered us here today, Lord, uh, to hear your words, to sing back to you your praises. You've received our praises. You have, I pray, ministered to us through your words. And you, you have words to say to us. You have words to put in our mouth to sing back to you and to say to one another after this, Lord. Help us to be just alive to the, to the drama of our lives. Things hang in the balance. You've called us to be something, Lord. Help us to be it. Fill us with your spirit, we pray, to be uh, under your direction, under your lordship, and under your intercession, under your comfort, under your calling, under your encouragement and exhortation, Lord. We pray, make us this kind of people. Make us this kind of church. Help us worship now. Let, Lord, help us to worship now with, with hearts full of the reality that we have just heard and meditated on. That you receive this worship. You're honored by it. You love it. And, uh, 
and do all this and more, all the things I could never think of even to ask for the glory of your resurrected, ascended son, our king. Amen. Amen.